I want to read to you from John 15. I'm going to read the first verse, and then I'll jump down to verse 8, and we'll read through to verse 17. So, John 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. We'll read on from verse 8. It says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Remember, he said, Your branches... You stay in me, you abide in me, and you'll bear fruit. So bear much fruit. Then he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit And that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, we've been spending a few weeks in this passage because it is wonderfully um, rich and powerful. And um, as I've been saying to you, I think it's an incredibly poignant moment in the Gospel of John. He devotes a lot of time to the final evening before Christ is arrested and crucified when he celebrated the Passover supper with his disciples. And so there's a good chunk at the middle of this gospel, which is amazing when you think that the gospel tells a story of three years of Jesus' life. But there's a massive chunk in the middle of the gospel when all John does is retell the words of Jesus from that night when he was betrayed and arrested, put on trial and executed the following day. And there's a poignancy, therefore, to these moments. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew because God had shown him. And there's a focus and an intensity to everything that he does and says here. And so we've been focusing in on just this one passage in John 15. And for me, the importance of each of these sections in this gospel when Jesus is speaking to them, and especially perhaps of this part in John 15, is it has that sense, you know, you've seen it dramatized, how um, a commander-in-chief or a field marshal in times of war, and each, when soldiers would be lined up on the battlefield, would walk to and fro or march to and fro or ride on his horse, giving a kind of final speech to inspire and instruct and give objectives to his men before they then head into battle. And there's a sense of that going on here. Jesus is imparting to these men, the 12 disciples, the apostles, um, some of his highest most pressing concerns before they then are released into the work to which he had called them. And so what is it that he's interested to communicate is the question. And I've been wanting to show you some of the themes that run through this passage, one of them being this idea of what the disciples called to abide or remain in Christ. That if you're a Christian, you are called to stay in and near to Jesus your entire life, never to wander astray, but to have faith in him and walk near with him. Then we've been thinking about the idea of bearing fruit, that 
Christ's call upon your life is not that you be barren and bare and dry and dead, but rather that Jesus has given you a specific calling as a disciple to live a life of fruitfulness for him. What a privilege, what an immense dignity he's conferred upon us as his people to live lives that have meaning and purpose because of the fruitfulness that we'll bear. But arguably, one of the main focuses in this chapter, perhaps the main, in this section, the main focus is the summons here that Jesus draws to, you know, brings it to a kind of climax as he calls and commands and charges his disciples twice here that they are called to love one another. It says it in verse 12 and 17. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. And then again at the end, uh, these things I command you so that you will love one another. I don't think that we can overstate the importance of what Jesus is saying here. If you're familiar with Christ's teachings, I don't want to assume that you are, but you know the backdrop was, of course, that the Jewish people had many, many laws, over 600, 613 to be precise, laws or commandments that they were called to obey as written in the Torah, in the, in the books of Moses at the beginning of the Bible. And there was a lot of debate that had taken place among the rabbis around what was the most important command of them all. And when Jesus was asked that question, you can read about it in Mark chapter 12, when a scribe asked Jesus the question, interested, perhaps putting him to the test a little bit, see how well he knew his scriptures, asked him, what's the most important of them all? Jesus said, well, here's the first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So a Christian is somebody whose heart responds with affection and love and service and worship towards God. You have a relationship with God. But he doesn't leave it there. I think in our day and age we might expect him to because we tend to think of spirituality as a very individualistic experience. It's your own encounter with supernatural realities or encounter with God. And so we, we've carved out this idea of the lone individual in, in, in enjoying spiritual experience. But Jesus immediately says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he, he binds these two commands together in a way, actually, that means that they are, you can't separate them. To love God and to love others, they're inseparable. And so if you know anything of Christ's teachings, you'll know that the call to love is right at the top of his agenda and his priority. And it's, in fact, what he sought to demonstrate in his entire life. Now, I think our first reaction to that is one of relief. Let me just read to you a few verses from Paul's letter to the Romans. I think he captures the essence of this. He said, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Can you hear that? He's saying all of it can be boiled down to this. Just love each other. And then he begins to recite some of the commandments. He says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we hear this call from Christ to love others, I think our immediate first reaction is one of relief in the sense that, well, it's simple, it's, uh, it's very positive, 
and it's acceptable. And here's what I mean by those. It's simple because all of the 600 plus commandments are boiled down to just this one thing. So you needn't bother learning all the rest. If you love, then you're doing well. It's also highly positive. All the negative commands of the Old Testament, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet, you shall not steal. Paul says all of them can be summarized in this positive summons. Just love. Love each other. And it's also acceptable. And what I mean by that is this. I've been in and around church my entire life. And I have also been a pastor for about 15 years, which means I've had much opportunity to dialogue with people's objections and engage with people who don't follow the Christian faith. And I've heard, I've heard all the objections, I think, at least the main ones that predominate in our context. I have never in all my life heard anyone object to this call to love. I've never heard someone say, you know, the problem with you Christians is that you are just so loving. It's disgusting. You know, I really hate that about Christianity. Nobody has a problem with this. The simplicity of it, the positive dimension to it, and the fact that it's just acceptable. Everybody likes this part of the Christian faith, the idea at least of love means that our first reaction to this call of Jesus, love one another, is a sense of, oh, we can, this is a relief. It's so, it's so simple, it's straightforward. We needn't be stressed out. But here, I think then, if you give it any more thought, you'll be confronted with a problem. Here's the problem. If this command is as sweet and simple and beautiful as it sounds, why has the church failed so abysmally at times and so consistently to obey? Now, that's a historical reality. You don't need to read far back into the history of the church in this nation to know that the church has not always been characterized by love. I'm speaking of the church generally, but it's true also of individual congregations. And that our history is one of much division, and at times in centuries gone by, mutual hatred and persecution and even bloodshed. And, you know, I don't need to stress the point that that's about as far away from what Christ is teaching, as you can imagine, right? And even if none of us have encountered any of that, and I hope you haven't, if you've been in and around churches for long enough, and for me that's approaching 40 years, and I could almost count the number of Sundays that I haven't been in church, so thoroughly immersed in church life has my life been, you'll know and I'll agree with you that our experience of church has not always matched up to this summons, this charge, this command of Jesus. And often it's fallen short. We've encountered things like the religiosity and formality that can characterize the pious churchgoers. Where we're serious about God, it would seem, but that doesn't somehow translate to warmth and affection for each other. Or perhaps you've encountered something of the kind of infection of Western individualism and consumerism. I think this is a massive problem 
In some ways, I think this is the greatest idol that is harming and damaging the church in the West is our individualism and consumerism. And what that looks like in practice is people who attend church rather than see themselves as a part of a church. And they attend for as long as the church gives me what I need. And then when it stops giving me what I need or it falls short of my expectations, I am out of here. Now, just to be clear, there are valid reasons at times to move church. But in my experience, most people who move church don't do so for valid reasons. It's just personal preference. It's consumerism. It's the same kind of consumerism that, that makes you switch your fashions from year to year or you know, change your, your online subscriptions or whatever else it is that we do with our money. And that mindset, when it's attached to the way we approach faith, is deadly to this call to love each other. I needn't spell that out. I think that should be obvious, right? And then there is obviously also the, the fact that so much of the history of Christianity in this nation, at least, has been so void of real spiritual life. In fact, I think it's been marked by much blatant hypocrisy. So many people see church as something that I attend dutifully, but I do not necessarily let my life be changed by the message, and I'm not conforming my life to obedience to Christ. I attend church out of dutiful formality, but I'm hoping that I'll end soon so that I can go out and do what I really want to do. My question, friends, is how we as a church, as God's people, how we can wholeheartedly and passionately give ourselves. You give yourself to this call to love the body of Christ, to love the people to your left and to your right. And I want to seek to answer that as best I can in view of what Jesus says here. I'm really focusing on the 12th and 13th verse. This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, the first thing I want to say in answer to this question is I think you have to understand the impossibility of the command. I want to say that because I think part of the reason we fail when it comes to love, real, genuine love, as it conforms to what we see in Scripture is that we have distorted and reduced and sentimentalized and romanticized our vision of what love is. And we are a generation that's been raised on pop music and movies and pop culture that sort of of used the language of love but redefined it as something different from what the Bible has to say. I'll give you a couple of examples of just how facile this is. Think about, I know very few of us were born then, but think about the 1965 song that the Beatles sang, which you all have heard, the refrain, all you need is love. And you can hear the melody, da, 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 all you need is love. And it was this, it's this simplified idea of what love is. Of course, we forget that just a few years later, the band dissolved over irreconcilable differences and ambitions among the lead singers. And then a year after that, in 1971, 
John Lennon, in his solo career, releases his first solo album and sings the international blockbuster, Imagine, that kind of free love hippie song that captured the idea of an era that if we just all love each other, the world will be at peace. And he sang, one of the verses went like this. He sang, imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. It's this appealing but superficial notion of love. So superficial, in fact, that when he died nine years later, he died with a net worth of around $200 million, which in today's money is around $700 million. So he died well on his way to becoming a billionaire in today's money. Imagine no possessions, people. And all I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is that our notion of love is disconnected from reality. We're happy to buy into the kind of glitzy, made-up, superficial notions of love, but the reality hasn't really made a connection in our lives. And I think of all the generations, perhaps in history, we're one of the generations that least understands what love really is. I think we go wrong in a couple of ways. One is that we over-romanticize, and the other is that we over-sentimentalize. And here's what I mean. We over-romanticize when we imagine that what Christ was calling these men to was something easy and straightforward. Forgetting that these were men, even just in that small group of 12 of them, these were men with profound, almost virtually irreconcilable differences. Now, this is a group that's selected from the same nation. They're all one sex. They're all probably of a similar age. And so you think they've got the best possible chance of making a go of loving each other as brothers. And yet you find among them, you dig under the surface, you discover that they had profound differences. You think of their political differences. You had on the one hand a man whose name was Simon the Zealot. He was named for his political passion. It's like calling you Barry the Remainer or Bob the the Brexiteer or whatever it is. You know, that just came to me in the spot. Can you just admire the creativity of that? (laughs) Simon the Zealot. Because all he wanted in life was to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what the Zealots were. And then you had Matthew the tax collector who worked for the Romans. I would love to have been in a room where those two were left alone to discuss their respective interests and passions in life. And it really, their differences make, make our political differences look like child's arguments because these were much more deep-seated life and death issues. They had their political differences within the small group of guys. They had personality differences. In any group of people, you discover that they're the extroverts and they're the introverts. There are people who are more prone to, to laughter and humor and others who are more serious and deep and weighty and more gravi- have more gravitas. And, uh, then, and they, they often don't understand each other. And then you had guys like James and John who were nicknamed by Jesus as sons of thunder because they're so fiery in their passions. And on one occasion collude with their mother, a little, a little coup to kind of make an arrangement with Jesus so that when he comes into his kingdom, they'll sit on his right and his left. These are not the kind of guys that you easily get along with. 
And then you add in the, the reality of proximity that if you spend enough time with the same people without any break, eventually love turns to hate. You know it because you've all done flat shares in London. <laughs> and then you add on top of that the responsibilities that these men carried in being, in the years to come, leading thousands of people, making very important decisions and the disagreements that must have existed between them as they try and work their issues through. And anyone who's been in leadership for any length of time will tell you that it's strenuous upon relationships. And so this idea, this idealized notion that these guys just enjoyed, you know, singing campfire songs around fires as they travel from village to village throughout the land and just so much affection and love and laughter, I don't think it was like that. And I think that's why Jesus has to say to them, brothers, this is my command that you love one another. And I stress all this because if it was difficult for them, it's no less difficult for us. Here's the reality. That the, re the church as a family is challenging because this is not a family that you choose necessarily or community that you choose to be a part of. You're called by Jesus and you find yourself among the church. That's how it works. Now, when you think about the relationships that have been closest to you in your life, particularly friendships... Friendships, by definition, are affectionate bonds with people that you choose to be friends with. And so you went to school and you discovered your crowd. You discovered your, your people. They may have been into football or chess or mass club or whatever it was, but you discovered your people. I know that perhaps wasn't true of all of you, but it was, for many that was the case. And then you go through life and it's the same. You, you find people that you find something in common with. And church isn't like that. It's not meant to be. It's much more like your biological family. And I know that for most of us, family is a mixed experience. That there are, there, are, there are family that you love and find joy in spending time with, and then there's family that you avoid. And maybe family that you've fallen out with. Because just the fact that you're biologically connected doesn't mean that you see the world the same way or even get along. And church is a lot more like that. It's a family. It's the analogy, it's the picture, it's the description that's used throughout the New Testament to stress this very point, I think. It's not that friendship doesn't exist within the church, but family's different from friendship, isn't it? And to state this negatively, I'd put it like this. It means that when you discover a church in which everybody is alike, because they have a natural bond of affection and affinity with each other. You have discovered there a spiritually sick church. Because the church as Christ called her to be is by definition a people called from all different places and called who would not naturally want to spend time together or love each other, but then are summoned in and drawn to Jesus and find themselves among this kinship and under this command to love. So we go wrong when we over-romanticize, and just briefly also when we over-sentimentalize. When we think about love as just doing lots of happy things together, you know, just hanging out over bottles of wine and enjoying dinner parties, if that's your definition of what community is, I'm not saying that shouldn't be part of it. More of that, please. But if that's your definition of what community is, and you have over-sentimentalized it altogether, 
Listen to Jesus' words here. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he immediately adds this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, if you are loving each other, you're dying. You're dying to your own preferences all the time. That's the bath of Christian love. So while there should be much joy and happiness and laughter within the experience of brotherhood and sisterhood and friendship that we have within church, I think that you you, it cannot be overstated how difficult this love can be. That it is, in fact, impossible. And that if we over-romanticize or over-sentimentalize our definition of love, we will set ourselves up for failure from the get-go. This command is well-nigh impossible. Now, the next thing I want to say on this, however, is that Jesus makes it possible for us to love each other. And I want to see something of the paradox or the contradiction, the tension of what I'm saying here. Is it impossible or is it possible? Because that's the very thing that Jesus wants to stress here in this passage on the vine. In verse 5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. In other words, real Christianity is marked by a life and lifestyle that without Jesus would be impossible. And I think love fits into this box. Without Christ, the call for us to build a family or a community where we love one another is impossible. And I know this as a pastor who labors above all to want to inculcate within this church family mutual love. I know the challenge of that and that if we do not depend upon Christ, pray to him, preach into this, summon people to the gospel, it just cannot happen. Without Jesus, it's impossible. However, if we abide in Christ, he says you bear much fruit. And so I see this command as something which in the natural is an impossible task. But with Christ, we experience an ability to love within the, the family of the church, the community of the church. How does Christ enable us to love each other? He gives us the resources, the motive, and the power to love. First, he gives us the resources. It is a lot easier to love others when you have first been the recipient of love, it's true naturally. If you have grown up knowing nothing but rejection, it's very hard to then be someone who offers selfless love to others, and except by a work of God in your heart. But when you've been surrounded by love, when your life is full of love, it's much easier to love others. And in a sense... I think we could use an economic kind of an analogy here. Our hearts are not unlike our bank accounts. It is very difficult to give away lavishly and generously when your bank account is empty. It should, in theory at least, be a lot easier when it's full. I know that doesn't always work in practice. But you can't give out of something you don't already possess. 
And when Jesus was calling his disciples to love one another, always in Scripture, what you see is that there is, in the background, behind that summons to love, there is the assumption, the premise that God has already loved you. And so there's something like the spiritual equivalent of trickle-down economics going on here. Do you know that phrase? It's the, the theory, at least, that when, when, a, when a nation is freed up from the burden of taxation and businesses thrive and wealthy people get wealthier, all the money just runs downhill and the poor get wealthier too. I don't know if that works in, in, in reality. I'll leave that one with the economists. But there's something of that going on here in this passage when Jesus, listen to what he says here. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That's verse 9. And then in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So you see this powerful um, overflow of the love of God. That the Father has loved the Son. The Son has loved us as his people and having experienced the overwhelming reality of the love of God in your life, you are now enabled and resourced to love others. Here's how it's put in one of John's letters, the same author, same writer, in 1 John 4. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The world was, in, was a kind of a desert without love until the Son of God came in and the love of God was, was channeled through him and his actions and his death on the cross into planet Earth. And then he said, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. So we've experienced, we've been the beneficiaries, the recipients of the love of God that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then he adds this, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Christian love is always built, first of all, on you experiencing the love of God in your heart. Have you known the love of God shed abroad in your heart, to use Paul's language? Have you encountered this love? When you do, it changes you from the inside out. It fills you up so that your heart is able to overflow with love towards others. It gives you the resources. It gives you the motive. And here's what I mean. There's a command. This is my commandment that you love one another. And then verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. That command resonates and rings in the ears of God's people, motivating and empowering us to do this. Left to ourselves, without leadership and without rule and law, humans descend into anarchy and selfishness. You see this whenever states fail around the world. You see it in moments when anarchy breaks out, even as it has done in London at times that we revert to our most primal selves and we start stockpiling things from supermarket shelves and having endless amounts of cooking oil and toilet paper and things on our shelves because we're just interested in ourselves. When government and leadership is absent, we revert into selfishness and looking out for me. But the church is governed by the rule and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ perpetually, 
And his voice and his command and his summons and his charge rings in our ears, love one another, controlling us and governing how we think about what it means to live the Christian life. And so if Christ is our leader and this is his will made explicit to us, a Christian is someone who's sensitive to that. A Christian is someone who is motivated by that. Who hears what Jesus says here, this is my commandment that you love one another and cannot ignore it. Cannot remain in an isolated silo of self-sufficiency, me and my walk with God, because it really casts a doubt on whether you're a Christian at all, but must begin to find ways of loving the people of God in service and in affection, generosity and kindness and whatever else God calls you to. You have the resource, you have the motive, you also have the power to love. Let me use an analogy here. We talk and hear a lot these days about renewable energy. That digging up carbon from the earth and burning it is not a very sustainable, helpful, or healthy way to fuel our energy needs. There is a dream of one day cracking the problem of nuclear fusion. It's the same reaction that's taking place within our sun. And if the scientists can crack it, then one day we'll have an almost limitless supply of perpetual power and energy to fuel our needs. And it seems to me that at the heart of the Christian faith, there is a nuclear fusion, a perpetual power that fuels and powers God's people towards love. And it's there in the gospel. This is why when Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, and then he immediately adds this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. I don't think the disciples understood what he was saying at this particular moment. But without question, within days or weeks, that word began to take root and grow with understanding as they saw, demonstrated before their very eyes, the way Christ taught them to live out a life of love, it was in his own sacrificial death upon the cross. And at the heart of our faith, the gospel generates and empowers us to love others. If you're a Christian, you've encountered the love of God in and through Jesus and his love for you and his death on the cross. It empowers you to love others. How does it do that? I think I could answer that in many, many ways. But one way is this. That one of the laws, the spiritual laws the Bible tells us is that we become like what we worship. If you worship sex, you become lascivious and licentious and governed by your lusts. You worship money, you become greedy. You worship power, you become abusive and oppressive. Like the ancients, if you worship at the center of your religion is a god of war, you become violent. If at the center of your religion is a god of fertility, you become only interested in production and reproduction. If at the center of your religion is a teaching or a philosopher or you know, one of these religious founders whose whole life was governed by philosophy and mysticism, then 
the religion becomes inherently detached and mystical. If at the center of your religion is a system of law or of morality, then the followers of that religion become legalistic, moralists, and judgmental. Whatever is at the heart of our faith will express itself in the way that we live it out. It's a law. And so what happens? I ask you, I don't think it takes much thought to understand this. What happens if at the heart of the Christian faith is the self-sacrifice of a Savior in an act of unparalleled love in history, Jesus dying on the cross to save us from our sins? Here's how John again puts it in his first letter. He said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, in other words, for the church. You've encountered love when you met Jesus. You met someone who had you in his heart when he was willing to bleed out his lifeblood to rescue and redeem you and save you. And you feel that even though you didn't deserve it, you've been lavished with the love of God and it's flooded your heart and transformed you from the inside. And then he says, having encountered this love, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he goes on and explains. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Can you see, friends, how the life of the church and the life of individual Christians is controlled by the reality of the love of God as it's demonstrated and poured out in the death of Jesus on the cross. And it means that it's impossible, having once encountered Christ and his love for you, it's impossible to withhold love from others. Here John talks about generosity, but we could enumerate many other examples of the way that love can be expressed. You can't close your heart to the needs of others when God hadn't closed his heart towards you. And so what is impossible suddenly becomes possible by the power of God at work in and through us. I want to bring this to a close by giving you a number of charges and directives in terms of how I think this has to be worked out in practice. Here you hear the voice of Jesus. This is my commandment that you love one another. And to be perfectly clear and explicit with you, Jesus is speaking here primarily about the relationships within the local church of which you are a part. The people in this room, if this is your church. Some of you immediately object to that and say, well, doesn't that sound overly exclusive? Am I really meant to just love these people? I don't think that's at all how you to understand it. In one sense, yes, it is exclusive. The church is our priority, but it's exclusive in order that it becomes an inclusive dynamic. Here's what John, Jesus says that same evening when he's talking to his disciples in John chapter 13. He said this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
And how I understand it is like this. That the church of God is called to make love for one another the highest priority of our lives. So that in building a community of love and affection in which everybody experiences the care and support and the reality of what it means to be part of a family, the church becomes a city on a hill. And people see what the church is and are drawn into the the reality of, of God's family. So we begin here, and the, the, the mission and the work of God is extended into the world. So let me give you a number of directives in terms of how I think this has to be worked out. First of all, you have to be deeply committed to your church. It matters little to me in one sense what church that is. It doesn't need to be this one. As long as they preach the gospel and the spirit is present, Put down roots. Make a commitment. And I say that because no one ever succeeded in loving the people of God while remaining aloof to the church. It's not possible. A commitment in Scripture is a biblical synonym for love. It's almost the same thing. Because God's love is covenant, faithful love. It's saying I've stuck myself to you and you to me and I will never let you go. And somehow the love of God that's worked in and through the people of God must be expressed, first of all, in commitment. You choose to belong, and you don't let that choice be rocked easily. And that's a deeply countercultural move, because we're living in the day and age of exchangeable, almost disposable relationships and turnover of friendship and even a family. The church of God is marked by that stability of commitment. That's the first thing. The second is this. You must make the church a priority. What I mean is this, that it cannot be far down your list in terms of how you give time and affection and energy. Think about what love is. By definition, love is prioritizing someone. I know this within marriage, that love demands that I choose my wife over time with others. I know this as a parent. There are many children around my life, but I prioritize love for the four kids that God has given me. And therefore, to love God's people must by necessity involve the prioritization of time and of energy and of effort poured into the church of God. I love how Paul describes this in his own life when he's writing to one of the churches that he founded in Thessalonica. He said, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. He says, When we came to you, we preached the gospel, but we didn't just share the good news about Jesus. We poured our lives into you in affection and love and relationship. So it begins with commitment, and then there's priority, saying, I'm going to put the church first. Then the third directive is that you must be willing to then move past the natural barriers that you encounter within the church. And this has to be named and addressed repeatedly. 
because there are so many natural barriers. Humans, by nature, are tribal creatures, aren't we? If you, if you spend time traveling through London, it is visible that we are, by nature, tribal creatures because you can drive from region to region, area to area, borough to borough, and neighborhood to neighborhood in London and see different groups of people with different color skin or different style of dress. And you'll go through the city of London, you'll see all the suits. And then you'll go out to uh, West London, you'll see um, many who are from East Asia and and India. And then into North London, you have the the Turkish community. And then South London, the Korean community. And then East London, the Bangladeshi community. And South London, the black communities. And of course, it's more complex than that. But anywhere you go, you'll see tribalism that, that divides, to some extent, our relationships. The love that Christ is calling us to has to, by definition, transcend those sorts of natural barriers of ethnicity or of age or of educational background or wealth or even just a personality and preference and all these kinds of things. And it's not that that we as humans kill or destroy or obliterate the tribal way of thinking altogether because it's, it's the human desire to want to belong. But rather that we draw the line of what our, who our tribe is around the church of God. Not so that we can be hostile to those outside, on the contrary, but so that we can start from a base of knowing the people to whom we belong and loving around Jesus Christ, who we have in common, so that even if you have nothing else in common with the person you're sat next to, you have Christ. And so our love has to break out of these natural boundaries and barriers. For me, speaking as a pastor in a church that has gathered people from different nations and backgrounds, I'll tell you that there is... There are a few things that make me more sad than when I see us retreating into silos of like being drawn to like. And nothing that thrills me more than when I see those boundaries being obliterated. And it takes intention and the love of Christ in our hearts to move beyond those natural barriers. Let me tell you, number four, you have to practice self-denial. Love does mean a sacrifice of time and of energy and of your wealth and of your food and your dinner table and whatever else. It has to involve giving. And love also requires sacrifice in that you sometimes have to move against your own instincts and who you are and the way that you're wired. I know this is someone who's naturally shy, that I have to put my shyness on the altar and kill it, recognizing that it's not pleasing to God for me to withdraw into myself. You may experience social anxiety in a gathering such as this. It causes you to withdraw, to run out and escape as quickly as possible. And I want to encourage you, love will teach you to move past yourself. To think about the needs and interests of others. And as soon as you begin to show interest in another, anxiety begins to melt away. I'm not saying I don't want to make it sound overly simplistic. I understand that these things are difficult. 
But love involves sacrifice and dying to yourself. That's why Jesus told these men that greater love has no one than that he lay down his life for a friend. It involves the sacrifice of, of yourself. You can't love the church and spend every possible way, um, available moment in your free time in front of your television. You can't love the church and just constantly be thinking about how you can be outside London at the weekends. You can't love the church and uh, indulge your introvert time as an excuse not to spend time with others. It's not possible, friends. It calls you to sacrifice. Let me tell you one last thing. To love God's people means you have to dwell deeply in the gospel. As I said to you, I've spent 95 to 99% of Sundays in my life in church. I know the problems and conflicts that exist under the surface. I've experienced them, I've been part of them, and I've witnessed them many times. And sooner or later, you'll encounter hurt, you'll encounter offense, frustration, disappointment with somebody who you've been seeking to love. What you do then can determine your ability to obey this call and this command. And fundamentally, loving the church requires the constant decision, resolve to show the same grace and forgiveness to others as God has shown to you. In fact, it's proof that you belong to him. And so I bring you back to that thought that the power that we have to love one another is generated in and from the reality of the grace that God has shown us. If God welcomes us with all of our mess and crap and rubbish and wickedness of heart and intention into his presence and calls us his children, cleanses us, moves in and makes us his own, If God has done that for you, then that same grace that comes through the gospel can be extended to others. And you needn't remain in a position of hurt or anger or disappointment or hatred. The Lord enable us to love each other as brothers and sisters. Let me pray. Let's bow our heads together, friends.